Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'm a little under the weather this week, so I'll keep things short. Just a few days now until the deep, dark waters part and the entrance to our nautical flash fiction contest is revealed. Keep an eye out for it over at talestoterrify.com slash flash contest, which is where you can also find out more particulars about the contest. But for those who are curious, entries can be up to 1,500 words, and the winner takes home bragging rights, has their story published on an episode of Tales to Terrify, and will receive a cash prize of $50. Selected runners-up can also have their story read aloud by one of our phenomenal narrators and published on the show. The contest opens May 1st and will run until the end of the month. So, while you've got a little bit of time yet, fair warning, it does evaporate fast. So get your seafaring, storytelling juices flowing, and let's see what delicious, barnacle-encrusted horrors you can summon from the deep. We have one longer tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Katie Young. Katie Young is a writer of dark fiction, her work appears in various anthologies, including collections by Cemetery Gates, Scott J. Moses, Dark Dispatch, 
Nix Publishing, Ghost Orchard Press, and Fox Spirit Books. Her story, Lavender Tea, was selected by Zoe Gilbert, author of Folk, for inclusion in the Mechanic Institute Review's Summer Folk Festival 2019. Katie is also a regular contributor to literary salons and storytelling events around London, where she lives with her partner, an angry cat, and too many books. Is that really a thing? Children of the Night, join me for Katie Young's Fruiting Bodies, a Tales to Terrify original. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Governess. The first time Eliza Letts laid eyes on the Ashby brothers, she felt an inexplicable sense of unease which stayed with her long after they left the room, much like the lingering dread inspired by a forgotten nightmare. Lady Ashby had ushered Eliza into the vast orangery at the back of the country house, its ornate windows overlooking rolling lawns which led down to acres of dark woodland. It was the height of summer the sunlight streaming in through the glass and the air humid. But instead of lush blooming orchids and fragrant fruit trees, the hothouse contained trays and trays of dirt, piles of straw and decaying logs. It smelt mulchy and sulphurous, like dead things, and it was all Eliza could do not to cover her nose with her handkerchief. Sorry about the unholy stench, 
Lady Ashby said, reading Eliza's mind. The boy's father took them truffle hunting when they were small, and it's become quite the obsession. Eliza smiled. That's quite all right. What's wrong with lemons, Bougainvillea, or a nice African violet, I ask you? But boys will be boys, Lady Ashby said with a wry grin. The mention of the children seemed to conjure them, and two identically dressed figures appeared out of the trees and jogged towards the house. I didn't realise your sons were twins, Eliza said. They're not, Lady Ashby replied. Emery just likes to follow his older brother in all things. You know how children can be. They're extremely close, especially since their father, Lady Ashby, trailed off. Eliza had read the newspapers and heard the rumours. According to various sources, Lord Ashby had run off with another woman, drowned in a sailing accident, defaulted on a loan from violent criminals, or simply walked away from his crumbling house and mounting debts. The one common thread in all the stories was that Lord Ashby had mysteriously vanished some two years previously and had not been heard from since. Ah, boys, Lady Ashby said, clearly grateful for the interruption, as Percival and Emery burst into the greenhouse. This is Miss Letts. She's here about the tutoring position. Come and say hello. It's Mrs. Letts, actually, Eliza corrected quietly. I'm widowed. Oh, I do beg your pardon, Lady Ashby said, blanching. The boys were much older than Eliza had first supposed. They obediently came to stand in front of her, and the slightly taller of them proffed his clammy hand for her to shake. Pleased to make your acquaintance, Mrs. Letts, he said, still short of breath from his run across the garden. I'm Percival. But you may call me Percy if you like. And this is Emery. Charmed, Eliza said, although truthfully she was anything but. Lady Ashby showed Eliza around the boys' playroom and the rest of the rambling old house, before ushering her into the large kitchen for some tea. Mrs. Winters, the housekeeper, comes in three times a week, but I'm afraid since my husband... Lady Ashby cleared her throat. <clears throat> since I've been alone, full-time help is a luxury I can no longer afford. It's all hands to the pump, I'm afraid. She placed a cup and saucer in front of Eliza and poured her tea. I had to let most of the staff go, and the boys cannot board any more. The fees are simply beyond me. Eliza blushed. She was not used to strangers speaking so frankly, and her potential employer's candour did little to ease her misgivings. Although it explained why Eliza was being considered a tutor the young men in the first place. She willed the flush to fade from her cheeks as she busied herself splashing milk into her teacup. Uh, if I may speak plainly, Lady Ashby, I was expecting the children to be a little younger. I fear they may have more learning than I do. The boys are too old for a full-time governess, that's true. And they are both very advanced in their scientific learnings. They inherited their interest in the natural world from their father. But now they are no longer in school. Left to their own devices, they would devote every hour of the day to growing toadstools and examining moulds and lichen in the ruins of our orangery. Latin comes easily to them, but they must read classics, poetry, philosophy. They should take an interest in current affairs and hone their conversational French. Oh, you do speak French, I take it. Uh, yes, Lady Ashby. Well enough. Très bon. <laughs> and they must practice their instruments. Emery especially is a talented pianist. Uh, how wonderful, Eliza said. But I'm afraid I haven't played for years. No matter. The boys have very little left to learn about music theory, but Emery needs supervision, Lady Ashby said, stirring her tea distractedly. They both do. Someone to watch over them, hone them into proper little gentlemen. 
Uh, I see. Eliza thought about Percival's damp handshake and repressed a shudder. Uh, and when would you like me to start? No time like the present, Lady Ashby said, dropping her teaspoon with a clatter and taking a sip of her drink. You're offering me the position? Lady Ashby laughed. Of course. My husband always said I was too impulsive, but I think you and I both know that life is short, Mrs. Letts. If you want the job, it's yours. I can only afford to pay you for a few days a week, but you are welcome to stay in the house as part of your remuneration. Take any of the empty rooms as your own. My house is your house. I shall be glad of the company. Eliza drank her tea and pondered her situation. Lady Ashby's proposal was an unorthodox arrangement, but the alternative was bleak. It had been eight years since she had received the letter telling her that her husband, Richard, wasn't coming home from the Western Front. Six since she had given up the modest home they had shared and moved back into her drafty childhood cottage. Since the war, people in the town had little use for a governess. What did she have left? Nothing but endless days of menial work, and nights spent sewing or reading by the fire with her father. Long, bitter, silent evenings stretched out before them, Eliza watching him drink himself to death while she sought refuge in her fading memories of happier times, the air between them thick with coal ghosts the air between them thick with coal smoke and ghosts. In that case, Lady Ashby, I gratefully accept. The Private Diary of Percival Ashby 25th of July, 1924 Ophiocordyceps, unilateralis. Pathogenic fungus that infects insects and takes control of their bodies. Imagine, if you will, a humble carpenter ant going about its business on the forest floor, unaware that it has picked up spores which will breach its exoskeleton, drive it to climb a well-positioned trunk or plant stem, bite down hard on a twig or the vein of a leaf, and lock its mandibles fast. When the ant is stuck in this death grip, hyphae branch out of the body, anchoring it in place while the parasite feeds on the ant's soft tissues. There the misfortunate creature stays until it finally expires. Once it is dead, a long, fruiting body bursts through the top of its head and sprays spores far and wide. They float down to wait for the next unlucky host to scurry by while the ant's husk is slowly reduced to dust. Of all the things we humans fear, loss of agency over our own bodies must surely be one of the most troubling. The idea that some unseen force could compel us to act while we, locked inside, can only bear witness. Even those who believe we were created by a higher being as part of some divine plan, that our lives are preordained by a malevolent god, believe that he gave us free will. But what if that free will is removed? Furthermore, what if there is no such thing as free will at all? What if we are not individuals, but a system of symbiotic life-forms? Perhaps what we think of as the choices we make are really governed by other forces. Forces far older and more primal than our conscious minds can conceive of. Once the uncomfortable notion of that truth subsides, it leaves behind such possibilities. Myconologists such as Emery and I, such as our father was, know that there is more to the forest floor than the mushrooms which pop up through the leaf litter in autumn, more to the green fields than the fairy wings which appear as if by magic. Hiding beneath the surface there are vast networks of fungal hyphae, long threads which can sense food and danger, although they have no brains. When hyphae reach an object, they can extend in several directions at once. No limitations, no burden of choice. The network is both singular and legion. 
That is freedom. That is enlightenment. A new governess started today. A governess? I am almost fifteen, for God's sakes. It is quite absurd. Emery and I do not need a tutor. We need to be left alone to continue our studies in peace. Mother is becoming more insufferable by the day. She cannot understand how important our work is. Father did. He understood that there is a world beyond our own banal perception, where things like conversational French mean nothing. Language means nothing, because we are linked in ways most people cannot begin to fathom. Emery and I have a greater purpose. Mrs. Letts must not be allowed to interfere with that. Just as the ant remains ignorant of its sacrifice, dear Eliza will never realise she is now our puppet. A necessary and profane oblation to our glorious cause. The governess. Percival, it transpired, was fourteen. He was eighteen months older than his brother, more outspoken and disposed to take the lead. But despite the age difference, the boys were almost the same height, and both slight of build with limpid grey eyes. They wore identical clothes and matching expressions, blank, but not lacking in intelligence, rather as though they were perpetually distracted by some pressing matter and needed to be elsewhere. Eliza was unnerved by the stillness of her new charges. They were the quietest children she had ever encountered. Barely a word passed between them, although this did not seem to hinder their communication. Their movements were so eerily synchronised, they might have been choreographed beforehand or agreed by some telepathic means. Occasionally, small smiles tugged at the corner of their lips, as if an amusing thought had occurred to them both simultaneously. Even when Eliza addressed Emery directly, Percival would answer in a soft, well-mannered fashion, speaking on behalf of his timorous brother, to the point that if Eliza hadn't overheard the boys chattering when they thought she was out of earshot, she'd have taken Emery for a mute. It seemed hard to believe that Lady Ashby had given birth to these strange creatures. She was effervescent and pragmatic, and although she was prone to forgetfulness and distraction, it seemed to Eliza that she lived very much in the moment. Although money clearly wasn't as plentiful as it had been with Lord Ashby was around, Lady Ashby, or Laura, as Eliza was encouraged to call her, didn't believe in dwelling on her misfortunes or denying herself simple pleasures. In the absence of a cook, Lady Ashby asked Eliza to teach her how to bake, and the two women spent long, pleasant afternoons in the kitchen, making fresh bread and fruitcakes. Eliza found herself showing stories of her mother before she was taken by the flu, and occasionally of Richard. Lady Ashby rarely mentioned her husband, but she waxed lyrical for hours about her sons. The boys, however, barely acknowledged their mother. When they were not in lessons with Eliza, they spent all of their time in the woods or in the orangery tinkering with their soils and logs. They were always civil, always outwardly obedient, but it seemed to Eliza that they treated Lady Ashby as entirely inconsequential, something to be tolerated, like a fly buzzing about in their orbit, that they could not be bothered to swat. The Priest Father Thomas Reed usually gave short shift to gossips, but, to his shame, he had found himself fascinated by the disappearance of Lord Ashby a couple of years prior. Thomas had still been a novice when it happened, but many of the women who lived in the parish liked to linger after Sunday service, and as they milled about in the churchyard, waiting for their turns for an audience with the handsome new young priest— Father Reed couldn't help but overhear their many theories and speculations. Lord Ashby's vanishing had been the talk of the town for many months when it first came to light, 
but with no new developments having materialised over the past year or so, attentions had turned to other, more mundane, topics. That was until Eliza Letts had taken up a possession as governess to Ashby's two sons. The family didn't attend church as regularly as God-fearing folks should. But, if Father Reed were honest, he was rather relieved he only had to encounter those boys on high days and holidays. Lady Ashby seemed pleasant enough, if a little flighty, but there was something about the lads that disturbed the priest in ways he could not quite put his finger on. They seemed older than their years, and strangely still. On the rare occasion that they ran and gambled as other children did, there was something stiff and unnatural about their play, as though it was just for the sake of onlookers and not particularly spontaneous or joyful. Then there was the way they moved in unison, deferring to his older sibling in all matters, but he and Percival often blinked, coughed, sniffed, frowned or laughed at exactly the same moment. They were so alike that Father Reed often had trouble telling them apart, even as they approached the altar to receive the Eucharist, and when he looked into those unnerving grey eyes, as each boy stood before him, tongue extended for the communal wafer, he always had the horrible feeling they could see under his skin, into the very darkest corners of his soul. Father Reed! The priest was startled from his thoughts by Moore Blakely, who ran the town's general store. Mrs. Blakely, I trust you're keeping well. Well, business is slow these days, but Mr. Blakely and I have our health, and I mustn't complain. I just wanted to say what a lovely service that was today, Father. A really lovely service. Father Reed smiled his thanks, waiting for the old shopkeeper to get to her point. I hear Eliza Lex is getting to be schooling the boys at the big house. Yes. I believe so. Well, that's nice, isn't it, Father? Such a shame about her, Richard, wasn't it? Such a brave young man, and them only married a short time. I'm sure she's glad of the work. Bit odd, though, don't you think, Father? Why so? Well, the boys are not little kiddies, are they, Father? Well, most men, really. I wonder if it's proper. Pretty young widow living in the house with those two adolescents. The last word was whispered as Mrs. Blakely leaned in close towards Father Reed. The priest took a minute step back. I'm sure it's all above board, Mrs. Bragley. Uh, and I, for one, hope Mrs. Letts will be a good influence and bring the boys to church more often. But even as he said those words, Father Reed knew he didn't mean them. The Private Diary of Percival Ashby 12th of October, 1925 My 16th birthday Emery and I took a light breakfast, then snuck out of the house before Mother and Mrs. Letts could draw us into any childish celebrations or futile lessons. Instead, we spent a wonderful autumnal day in the woods. We collected several examples of psilocybe from the grassy paths that went through the trees, and from the rough bark of rotting trees. We nibbled at some chewy liberty cups, savouring their dark, earthy flavour as we waited for them to cast their spell on us. As we wandered deeper into the thicket, the sounds and scents became intensified, until I swore I could feel the frantic heartbeat of rabbits in their warrens underfoot, smell the warm, musty fur of foxes and badgers, and hear the rustle of starling feathers overhead. Emery threw his head back and laughed as the gunshot clouds broke and the rain came. Each drop seemed to spin through the air in slow motion, creating tiny rainbows of refracted light before they alighted upon our upturned faces and settled in our hair like minuscule jewels. His joy lit me up. I felt it in every cell of my body. 
Time became meaningless as we found the place where father is buried under an ancient yew and lay down in the cool moss and dead leaves. Hello, father, I called. Some part of me always half expected him to come bursting out of the enormous twisting bulk like the headless horseman in the story that had terrified us as children. But of course, father remained in the cold earth, as he always did, and I listened for him and put my palms out flat to feel the vibrations of the earth, all the strands of mycelium that wrapped around his bones rippling, reaching for my brother and me. We lay on the wet mulch, heedless of the shivers that wrapped our bodies, and listening to the voices in the soil. We heard the creaking and groaning of the tendrils in the substrate, all those burgeoning fruits pushing their way to the surface, ready to bloom with their medicines and their poisons and their secrets. We heard the gathering whispers, all the things that vast and ancient network knows, everything it has absorbed since the very beginnings of life. When the ant is infected by the fungus, it ceases to be an ant. It is the cordycepsin's ant's clothing. The psilocybin coursing through our blood meant Emery and I were no longer simply human. Our minds were part mushroom. By letting the fungi alter our minds as well as inhabit our bodies, we were allowing them to change our behaviour and understanding of our place in the universe, to imbue us with their strange wisdom. We stumbled back to the house at the gloaming. We felt renewed. Mother and Mrs. Letts were playing cards in the dining room when we returned. Mother tried to feign cheerfulness but we could tell our dishevelled appearance and prolonged absence had irked her. "'We've prepared you a birthday supper, Percy,' our governess said, brightly. Neither Emery nor I had much of an appetite, but we knew the price to pay for our day of wilding would be a stiff evening of polite chit-chat and choking down some of the governess's tasteless slop. I put my hand into my pocket and felt the little parcel of mushrooms wrapped in my handkerchief. Perhaps it was time for Eliza Lett to start spreading our spores. The governess. Eliza had spent a blissful day with Laura while the boys were out of the house. They had whiled away the hours polishing silver, folding laundry, and making pastry in companionable hush, while the gramophone played ragtime songs in the parlour. Most women of Lady Ashby Station would have been horrified at the thought of doing these chores, but Laura did not seem to mind at all. She approached each task with gusto, almost as if it were a game. Then again, Eliza supposed this was all a novelty to her employer. Laura had insisted Eliza accompany her to the butchers in town to pick up the game birds for a pie. Eliza supposed there might have been a groundskeeper at the house once upon a time, able to shoot all the grouse and pheasants the Ashbys could eat. But now Lady Ashby and her reclusive sons lived like hermits in the increasingly draughty and damp house, and Eliza was locked away with them. Odd, then, that she should feel so content. When she had first come to work for the Ashbys, Eliza made sure to visit her father at least once a week. But recently he had become so distant and sullen that Eliza had found herself avoiding the cottage, preferring to spend her time with Laura, who, in spite of her fall from grace and grief, was warm and alive. Eliza could not even remember the last time she had been home, and when she thought of that place now, she realised she had actually stopped thinking of it as home altogether. Laura was the closest thing she had felt to home since Richard died. When Percival and Emery returned, their clothes filthy, their hair tangled, remote and unreachable as the North Star, it seemed to Eliza that all the joy evaporated from the house. Their presence was oppressive, and it occurred to her for the first time that Lady Ashby might be afraid of her sons. Supper passed pleasantly enough, 
The boys ate and even complimented the game pie, and Lady Ashby allowed them each a glass of wine from the dwindling cellar. After cake, Laura orchestrated some party games, snakes and ladders, charades, and finally, hide-and-seek. The boys were typically unenthused at first, but they brightened when Eliza and Laura offered to hide. Eliza half suspected that they were planning a prank, and she would be left in a closet all night. But the wine must have gone to her head, and she yearned to be alone in a dark place for a few moments. Colours seemed too bright, and voices too loud. One minute she felt like laughing, the next her heart raced and she had to concentrate on breathing lest she forgot how. Eliza found herself hypnotised by the way the sunlight burnished the skin of Lady Ashby and her sons. The boys had lost any of the childish roundness about their faces, and their cheekbones were high and sharp, like their mother's. Their lips were full and curled down at the corners, giving them a look of surliness bordering on cruelty. Somehow, over the course of the evening, Eliza had stopped seeing the brothers as children under her tutorage, and started seeing them as something wild and dangerous, wolves in sheep's clothing. Eliza reached a count of one hundred, as she pulled the door of the closet in one of the unoccupied guest rooms closed behind her. Pitch black, and the smell of camphor enveloped her, as she balled herself as tightly as possible, and tried to listen for sounds beyond the closet, through the sound of the blood thundering in her ears. But the house was quiet. Although it was just a childish game, panic threatened to claw its way up Eliza's throat at the thought of being discovered. It was ridiculous to be frightened. She knew that and yet her mouth was dry, and the downy hairs on the back of her neck stood on end. Eliza willed her pulse to slow down, and took deep, slow breaths through her nose, trying to ignore the overpowering musk of old wood and mothballs. She lost sense of how long she crouched there, but soon enough her back began to ache, and her left foot went to sleep. A floorboard squeaked in the hall outside, and Eliza closed her eyes and waited. Silence. Just as she plucked up the courage to open one eye a crack, the door of the closet was wrenched open and light flooded in. Emery stood over her, staring down with an odd expression on his face. Not quite a sneer, not a friendly smile, either. Found you, he whispered. Eliza tried to stand up, but her numb foot betrayed her and she stumbled backwards. Careful, Mrs. Letts, Emery said, holding a pale hand out for her to steady herself. We don't want you joining Richard just yet. Eliza's stomach lurched as if she were falling from a great height. What did you say? We've spoken to him, you know, Percy and I. He doesn't understand why you haven't come to bring him home. What are you talking about? It's very noisy where he is. All those bits jumbled up in the ground, confused and in pain. He doesn't rest. There's no peace under the ruined trees of Delville Wood. An icy prickle spread over Eliza's scalp and dribbled down her spine. She had not shared the exact location of Richard's death with anyone, not even Laura. All she had ever said was that he had died in the Great War, like so many of their generation. She had certainly never mentioned that cursed place. There was no way the boys could have overheard this detail. Who told you that? Eliza said, her breathing shallow and rapid. The voices in the dirt. Emery smiled indulgently, as if this should have been obvious. His eyes appeared huge in his face. The floor beneath Eliza's feet seemed to pitch and sway, and nausea overwhelmed her. She pushed past Emery and ran to her room. She barely reached the ensuite in time before the retching started. The priest. 
As he raised his cup to his mouth, Father Reed was aware of Percival Ashby's impervious gaze on him. He tried to suck the scalding tea quietly, self-conscious in the quiet of the parlour. A clock ticked somewhere behind him, but Thomas dearly wished someone would break the awkward silence. Percival sat on the faded couch, Lady Ashby to his left and Emery to his right. Eliza Letts was perched on the ottoman opposite his armchair. She looked wan, with dark circles under her eyes, and she was picking at invisible lint on her skirt. It had been two weeks since Eliza had come to the church in a state of distress. She was convinced that the Ashby brothers were trafficking with spirits, and begged Father Reed to come to the house and make an assessment for himself. Eliza Lett had always struck the priest as a most pragmatic woman, not the sort to let superstition get the better of her. But sitting in the chilly parlour, paint peeling from the ceiling rose overhead, the Ashbys staring at him with those steely grey eyes, it was not too hard to imagine that this house might conjure nightmares after sundown. More tea, father, Lady Ashby offered. She smiled, but Thomas could tell she was confused by his presence. No, uh, thank you, Lady Ashby, I'm fine for now. Brother Reed needed an excuse to get the boys alone. He really wanted to question Emery's claims about Eliza's late husband, but the priest knew there was little chance of separating the younger boy from his sibling. The two were practically joined at the hip, and Percival was not only his brother's keeper, but his mouthpiece as well. Eliza had mentioned the boy's fondness for nature, and for mushrooms in particular. She said the cultivation and study of fungi were almost an obsession for them. Uh, I wonder if perhaps Percival and Emery might accompany me to the woods for some foraging. I hear it's a fine season for moles and oyster mushrooms, and I should be indebted to you both if you could spare an afternoon to show me the best places to find them. Lady Ashby looked surprised, but turned to her sons. What do you think, boys? It's a lovely crisp day. Perhaps you could forego lessons this afternoon and accompany Father Reed. Yes, Mother, Percival said. If the boy found the request strange, he did not show it. Come on, Emery. Let's get our coats. The afternoon started out unremarkably at first. Emery was quiet, swinging a small basket by his side, but Percival seemed comfortable enough making small talk and was almost jovial at times. They walked deeper and deeper into the woods. The Ashby brothers pointing out different types of lichen, moss and mushrooms and the various kinds of trees they grew on or near. After an hour or so, Father Reed noticed an unpleasant smell in the air and wondered if perhaps they had stumbled upon the rotting corpse of some animal or a gut pile left by deer hunters. Stinkhorn! Percival exclaimed, laughing at the priest's wrinkled nose. The boy ran over to where a series of obscene-looking mushrooms had sprung up through the dead leaves blanketing the ground. The stalks were thick, curved and velvety. The caps were greenish-brown and oozing with glistening slime. Father Reed pinched his nose as he approached the foul-smelling things. Most repellent, the priest said. To you, maybe, Percival replied, a smirk playing on his lips, but not to the blowflies and insects who alight in search for a feast. The mushrooms need them to spread their spores, so they deceive them into thinking they are carrion. It's ingenious. Father Reed watched as the lazy bluebottle landed on the sticky fungus and sat, twitching. It has many names, Percival continued, but the most evocative must be Dead Man's Prike. He laughed as Father Reed felt his cheeks flush hot, despite the cold weather. <laughs> I'm sorry, Father. I hope you don't think me too wicked. Percival stared at the priest, and Father Reed found himself thinking of a butterfly, stuck through with pins for the scrutiny of the lepidopatrist. The boy's gaze had obscured just as thoroughly. 
Emery bent down and plucked one of the squatter eggs out of the dirt. He broke it open and started to eat from the slick insides of it like a feral beast. He stood and offered some to his brother, who ate straight from Emery's fingers. There was an unpleasant intimacy to the act. Father Reed shuddered and turned away. It's quite safe, Father, Percival said. The immature fruits have a lovely crunch and a peppery taste. Why would you want to eat something that smells like decaying flesh? Thomas asked before he could stop himself. Percival laughed and wiped at his mouth with his sleeve. I'd thought you of all people would see the appeal, Father Reed. I beg your pardon? Father Reed was not sure when he had lost control of the situation, but he knew he was swimming further and further out of his depth. How many times have you put your fingers in our mouths and told us to eat the body of Christ? The boy looked so amused, so pleased with himself, and the priest fought the urge to slap that self-satisfied smile off his face. That is an entirely different thing altogether, Percival. I don't see how. Transubstantiation is the metamorphosis of bread and wine into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, is it not? If you believe that, then the taking of Holy Communion is, by its very nature, a necrophagous act. A tight pain started to radiate from Father Reed's clenched jaw. He must not show this young upstart his fury. The Eucharist is sacrosanct, a way for us to remember the glorious sacrifice our Lord and Saviour made to redeem mankind. Comparing the sacraments of grubbing about in the mud like hogs is ignoramus at best, blasphemous at worst. Father Reed, face puce with rage, turned and stalked off in the direction of home. He knew he should see the Ashby brothers home safely, but he was too incensed to care. After a quarter of an hour or so, he heard snapping twigs behind him as Percival and Emery ran to catch him up. Percival blocked his path, panting heavily, and held out the basket for inspection. Inside was a large hall of mushrooms. There were grey and pink oysters, chanterelles, plus a host of other smaller, delicate-looking specimens, in shades of yellow, beige, orange, and even black. Peace offering, father, Percival said. I'm afraid morals only grow in spring, but these are all edible and delicious. You have to be careful, because there are so many poisonous things lurking in these woods. Father E took the handle of the basket and forced his expression into a tight smile. I'm sorry I teased you, father. What should my penance be? Thomas had the sense that he was being toyed with, even though Percival was doing his best to sound contrite. Perhaps these boys had lost their sense of propriety with no father around to steer them straight. He must try harder to be charitable. Pray on your sins, Percival. And you too, Emery. You may think it is merely sport to say provocative things, but words can be harmful. They can damn your very soul. You must be especially careful what you say to your mother and Mrs. Letts. Women can be extremely sensitive. You must not fill their heads with morbid thoughts. Do you understand me? Both boys nodded. And if you find yourself in need of counsel, I hope you will consider coming to the church. The sun was beginning to set through the trees, so Father Reed bid the boys farewell, thanked them for the mushrooms, and made his way home. The Private Diary of Percival Ashby, 27th of October, 1925 Father Reed paid us an unexpected visit yesterday. Mrs. Letts must have asked him to save our mortal souls. She's convinced Emery is a necromancer now, which in a way he is. So strange that most people would sooner place their belief in gods and monsters than look to the natural world for the magic that exists all about us. The priest was scandalised in the woods. He gawped like a fish at the audacity of the ground, 
rising up like that in all its fertile, turgid splendour. He's afraid of feeling things, of temptation, of using the body his precious God gave him for anything more than pompous piety. What a waste. It's endlessly amusing to me that he cannot see how the ecstatic drinking of a long-dead martyr's blood is a far stranger practice than any pagan pleasures Emery and I might pursue. So, I carefully curated the contents of the basket we gifted him, to ensure that his next communion will be most memorable. Ink caps. If left, they will start to excrete a black liquid which can be used to write unforgeable documents. These little beauties are perfectly edible with a pleasant, mild taste. Eat them, and you will suffer no ill effects. Unless, that is, you mix them with alcohol. For their other name is Tipler's Bane. If Father Reed eats the ink caps within three days of imbibing holy wine, things could get very nasty indeed for our dear Padre. The Piano Tuner Arthur could not remember how long he had been at the big house, if indeed that's where he still was. The various teas and infusions he was forced to drink made it impossible to keep track of time, or even what was real and what was a dream. He had been recommended to the Ashby's governess, Eliza Letts, who'd been looking for someone to tune the boy's grand piano. It was said that the youngest boy particularly had a gift for music. The governess had been a sweet but nervous woman, and she had come out of the house in the rain to escort Arthur from the carriage personally. As they moved through the house, it became apparent from the lack of voices and footfalls that there were no other staff in the house. Arthur had been shown into the boys' music room and sat at the piano. He started to tinker with the keys while Mrs. Letts went to fetch some tea. The instrument clearly had not been tuned for a long time, and although Arthur disapproved of neglect as a rule, it might mean more work for him, as a piano which had been out of tune for a considerable time would need tuning often before it could stay in key. Arthur began to unpack his tools, feeling his way around the soft leather case with a deft touch. He scented mildew in the drafty house and hoped that the inner workings of the piano were not too warped by damp. Hello. A clipped male voice startled Arthur into dropping his tuning fork. It hit the carpet with a dull ring. It was very unusual for him not to notice someone approaching. Usually their smell gave them away, even if they were silent. Hello? Arthur said, turning around on the stool. Are you the piano tuner? Yes. What's wrong with your eyes? I am blind. How did you lose your sight? I was born like this. Oh, so you don't know what a piano looks like? Arthur laughed. He was not used to people being so forthright about his blindness. No, I don't. Uh, not in the way you do. And you don't know what colours are? No, I have no concept of colour. People try and describe it, of course, but I have no way of knowing what terms like warm or vibrant or subtle mean in relation to how the world appears. To me, red is just an abstract notion. Fascinating. The young man had moved closer to Arthur now, and seemed to be leaning down, presumably to inspect his face. He was interrupted by Mrs. Letts, who returned with a rattling tray of tea things which she put down with a clatter. Percival, she said, you startled me. I hope you haven't been bothering Mr. Jameson. Not at all, said Arthur. The lad was just curious. Yes, just curious is all, echoed Percival. I can stay with Miss Jameson if you like. You must have things to do. I'd be interested to see how a piano is tuned, and I can help. Pour the tea, hand him tools, that sort of thing. Mrs. Letts paused, 
so Arthur filled the awkward silence by agreeing to Percival's request. The young man was a keen student indeed. He picked up the names of the various tools very quickly and asked lots of pertinent questions. When he handed Arthur a cup of tea, a strange herbal smell wafted up from the brew, but Arthur was too polite and too thirsty to turn it down. The taste was bitter, and he supposed it must be some exotic brew he was not accustomed to. The next thing he recalled was waking up to the sound of rain and the smell of wet earth. His body felt leaden, and when he tried to lift his arms he found he could not. He was cold and numb, and every now and then splashes of water fell on his face. Arthur's heart began to race. What do you see? Percival, that was his name. The young man's voice would come to him in the times between reverie. Nothing. I don't see anything. I'm blind. Sometimes the voice was slightly different. Still a young man, same timber, same inflection, but softer, timid. Drink this. Do you see colours now? It seemed to Arthur that this went on for days, the same questions being asked over and over again. Breathing was tricky, as if there was a great weight pressing on his chest. Only he could not really feel his body. His head throbbed at first, but now he felt nothing at all except cold. What do you hear? Speaking was difficult. Breathing was difficult. I hear rain. What else? Arthur tried to focus. There was something. Something that seemed to be coming from inside him as well as all around him. Clicks and squeaks. Creaks and cracks. Music. Low hums and high-pitched wails. Something I've never heard before. Something I have no name for. What do you know? Arthur knew he was dying. Or perhaps he was already dead, and this was purgatory. Or hell. There were voices. Not Percival, not the other lad. These voices were myriad, and they seemed to be inside Arthur. Maybe they had always been there, and Arthur had just failed to listen. The voices told Arthur to join them, to let the cold earth have him. They promised he would soon be free of fear and sadness, that he would be reborn, and finally come to know all the colours of the world. The Private Diary of Percival Ashby, 6th of April, 1926 The piano tuner is dead, at least the part of him that lived in his mind. His body is perfectly alive, teeming with the microscopic things that will break him down and return him to the earth. He lasted longer than expected once we injected the spores into his bloodstream, while the fungi could not create images in his mind or make him understand colours or light. They made beautiful music for him. He heard them growing inside him, becoming one with him. He heard them stretch and branch and twist in his veins, felt them settle in the spongy wetlands of his lungs, in the quivering chambers of his heart, and take root. I felt nothing but elation when I saw the spark leave his eyes, for now his next adventure can begin. Emery and I have had to keep Mother sedated, and upped Mrs. Lett's dosage of the hallucinogens. We cannot have them wandering round the grounds and discovering dear Arthur in the barn. It is too risky to take him into the woods, and it is only a matter of time before someone notices he never returned home that day. Father Reed is out of hospital, and on the mend, by all accounts. They say it is lucky he is young and fit, otherwise he might not have survived the heart attack. I heard that he caused quite a scene during Mass, 
shaking and sweating and spitting up, ranting about the putrid flesh of Jesus blocking his throat, clawing at the greasy blood in his nostrils. I wish I could have been there to witness it myself. We must move quickly now. All the stars are aligned. Emery's prepared. I must admit, every time I think of what is to come, I hesitate. Are we doing the right thing? Though I have faith everything will go as planned, I worry about leaving him in a corporeal sense. But he must be the one to stay and carry me with him. He plays piano so beautifully. I remember the day we found Father in the woods with the rope around his neck. It had only been a day or two, but his skin was livid purple, and his face had started to lose its human form. He hung like a sack of weevily flour. Emery was too young to understand, really, but I knew in the pit of my stomach that this had been inevitable since he returned from the war. We would watch him dig with his bare hands in the places his old gun dog sniffed out, like a man possessed in search of buried treasure. He would look at his bloody, ragged hands as if they belonged to someone else. He would tell us the truffle wants to be discovered, needs to be eaten to reproduce. That is why it makes itself so alluring. It needs to be destroyed to create. I suppose a soldier is both individual and legion. Like the carpenter ant, he can only watch as his body is commandeered for atrocious means, can only measure what it is to be human against the most hideous inhumanity. I climbed up into the boughs of the yew tree and cut father down with my penknife. We covered him as best we could with leaves and branches, and I stayed with him until Emery returned with a spade. It was big and unwieldy for his slight frame, and I had to do most of the digging myself. It took hours, but it was the best way. We know father was pleased with us, with the way we handled things, because he whispers to us every time we visit. He tells us we must continue his pioneering work and calls us his strong, brave boys. It is time to go. I will leave these diaries with Emery to keep safe until we are one and the same, and I'm sure everything has gone to plan. Then we will burn them. The Governess Eliza heard a pounding at the door. She tried to stand, too woozy to get her balance at first. She called for Laura, but there was no response. Lady Ashby seemed to sleep like the dead these days. Eliza kept meaning to call a doctor, but she could not seem to hold a thought in her head for more than a few moments at a time. She felt dreadful. She must be very ill. Where are the boys? Eliza, open up! She knew that voice. It was the priest, Father Reed. She staggered down the hall and opened the door. The priest's ashen face had aged since she last saw him. Surely that had only been a few days ago. Eliza, said the priest, stepping through the door and seizing her shoulders. Where are the boys? I'm not sure, Eliza replied. Perhaps in the playroom? You're slurring, Eliza. What's wrong with you? Are you drunk? Father Reed cupped her chin in one hand and pulled up her eyelids to stare into her tired eyes. Of course not. Though I must admit I'm not feeling well. Not well at all. Eliza swooned, and Father Reed caught her by the elbows. He half carried her through the house and sat her down at the kitchen table, before fetching her a glass of water. Drink this, he ordered. Where is Lady Ashby? Eliza shrugged. She wanted to answer, but her tongue felt thick and heavy in her mouth, and Father Reed's eyes kept blazing with tiny flames, which made her think of hell. Maybe he was not the priest at all, but the devil here to torment her. Was it not enough that her dead husband was possessing a child she was duty-bound to protect? Mrs. Letts, said the priest, sharply. 
Where are the boys? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think the boys poisoned me. I can't prove it, but I think they're dangerous. I want you to come with me, away from this house. Laura, Eliza could not and would not leave her friend. If the boys really were capable of poisoning the priest, perhaps they had it in them to hurt their own mother. If only Eliza could think through the fog in her mind. But Father Reed was moving again, out of the kitchen and storming around the house. Eliza stood on shaky legs and followed him out. She watched as he pushed the door of each room open, crying out when he saw Laura lying face down on the bed of the master suite. He checked to make sure she was breathing. Then, heaving a sigh of relief, he ran back downstairs and out into the orangery. Eliza stumbled out just in time to see the priest fall to his knees. She followed his terrified Richter's gaze and saw Emery bent over a trestle table, on top of which was laid a large heap of something pale and sprouting all over with mushrooms and moulds of different shapes and hues, trumpets and frills and fingers, slimes and furs and webbing. Emery was chewing, his eyes closed and expression beautific. He nodded and chuckled as if he were having a conversation with the air, or with himself. I can feel you. Come to me, Percival. That's it. I can feel you in my mind, in my veins. There was a smear of something powdery green on his white cheek, dark juices running down his chin. Eliza blinked several times, trying to make sense of what she was looking at. It did not look like a tree stump, maybe an animal husk of some kind, or a pile of sawdust. Eliza gagged when she recognised the splayed yellow strands of something she had mistaken for straw as Percival's hair. Emery swallowed another gobbet of pulpy flesh. Eliza started screaming. She was still screaming when the police arrived and cuffed her wrists and ankles, and as they bundled her into a carriage, while Emery watched from the window, his grey eyes glistening with satisfaction. That was Katie Young's Fruiting Bodies, as read by Georgia Cook. Georgia Cook is an illustrator and writer from London. She has experience on both sides of the recording booth, and in addition to Tales to Terrify, has contributed to such podcasts as The Other Stories and The Night's End, as both a narrator and writer. She can be found on Twitter at Georgia Cooked and on her website at georgiacookwriter.com. Thank you, Georgia. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. 
every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we vex your tormented soul with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 